Yeah, understanding what the other person is thinking is always a challenge, isn't it? Um, let me read you a fictitious discussion Teresa and I may have had a long time ago. Uh, me. And she's not in here this hour, so I can fix this one. Me. Sweetie, I'm back from the store with the things you wanted. Teresa. Wonderful. And you're wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> Me. Anything for you, dear. Well, here you go. Bread, yogurt, and celery. Teresa. Hmm. Where's the butter? Me. Honey, I didn't know you wanted butter. Teresa. Sweetheart, that's the main reason I asked you to go to the store. Me. Babe, you never mentioned butter. Look at the list. Teresa. Mark, you made that list. I'm getting ready to cook, and I've been waiting for you to get back with the butter. Well, Teresa, if you want me to get the butter, you have to tell me. Text me or something. I can't read your mind. Teresa, I did tell you. Me, you didn't tell me. Teresa, how can you stand there and tell me this? Me, you may have thought you told me, but you did not tell me. And before you know it, voices are raised, and we're using phrases like, you never, and you always, and you're just like your mother, and I could have married Albert, and, and next time, if you want to go to the store, go yourself, and I guess I'll have to if I want it done right, and on and on, and those kind of things. Now, the only thing fictitious, really, about that is that Teresa and I may have had that conversation more than once. <laughs> Actually, we have that kind of conversation without the going home and you're like your mother and all those things. We have that semi-regularly. Uh, it is difficult to always understand. And, and, you know, the goofy thing about that is, is she thinks she said this to me. I know she didn't. But when I look at her, she's swearing. And I'm thinking, this girl's really sincere. And if she was a betting woman, she would bet the farm that she told me. But I know she didn't. And so simultaneously, I'm, I would bet the farm that she didn't tell me. And we stare and we face each other. What do you do? I mean, rela- I don't know if that's ever happened to you, anything along those lines, but, but relationships are messy. Whether you've got roommates or neighbors or siblings or cousins or spouses, uh, relationships are just messy things. Now, here, here's part of the problem. We looked at this a little bit last week. Matthew 15 says, But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. That's coming from within. Problem is, we are more broken than we think we are. Look at the person next to you and say, You're more broken than you think you are. Go for it. And you got to say this, and so am I. According to the word of God, you and I have a propensity for lust and greed and lying and deception and self-preservation and selfishness and self-grandantizement and anarchy. We are despicable bags of dismal depravity. Tell the person next to you, you are a despicable bag of... Dis- no, no, don't, don't say that. Don't say that. But that's the, that's the reality. And it gets worse. Because not only am I a despicable bag of dismal depravity, but I was raised by despicable bags of dismal depravity. And we, we, we grew up with them, and we worked for them, and we worked under them, and we were taught by them, and we were coached by them. And they left their mark on our lives, either scars or um, dysfunctional coping mechanisms or some sort of twisted perspective of ourselves or others or situations. And so you take one of these 
despicable bags of des- dismal depravity and you hook them up with another despicable bag of dismal depravity, what are you going to get? There's going to be issues. There's going to be problems. Now, here's the good news. Good relationships are not void of problems. We, we think so sometimes. And so when problems come up, you know, obviously I married the wrong person or this is the wrong situation. or whatever. And so we run or we hide or whatever we do uh, because we're sure that we shouldn't have problems. But good relationships are not void of problems. They just handle the problems properly. That's all. You see, you say, good question comes up. Okay, how do you handle problems properly? If you look with me in your Bible to Joshua 22. Joshua 22. This is a case study where two different despicable groups of despicable bags of dismal depravity clash. And there's an issue. And matter of fact, the consequences, if this is not handled right, are going to be huge. Am I getting a little uh, feedback thing? Can we do what we need to do on that one? That'd be great. But Joshua 22. Just before you get here, just so you know, 47 years before this what happened is they just came out, Israelites just came out of Egypt, led by Moses via the ten plagues. Last 40 years and they had been spending, they were in the, in the desert. Then seven years before Joshua 22, they had crossed the Jordan to conquer Canaan. Now, when they were getting ready to conquer Canaan, you need to know that Israel, what they did is they went up around the, the Dead Sea. Do we have a map on this? Yeah, they went up around the bottom of the Dead Sea. And if you look over to, to the, your right of the Dead Sea, right? Yeah. And they, on the Jordan. And those, that land right east of the Jordan River, they didn't want to really conquer that land. Matter of fact, they were trying to get into Canaan, which is the land of the west of the Jordan. But the folk who lived on the right of the Jordan, the east of the Jordan, they weren't real happy about it. And so they got in a fight and they ended up taking some of that, conquering some of that land anyway. And just before they're getting ready to cross the Jordan to take on Canaan, this is what happens. Let me read this for you. It's in Numbers 32. Stay in Joshua 22, but Numbers 32. It says, The Reubenites and the Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eliezer the priest, and they said to the leaders of the community, and they said, Adaroth and Dan and Deber and Jizmon and Nimrah and Hishman and Ilya and Seban, Nebo and Bean, the land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel, are suitable for livestock. And your servants have much livestock. If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. Well, Moses gets all upset here because he says, oh, yeah, right. You guys are going to hang out and party now. And the rest of your brothers are going to cross the, the Jordan and fight and get into trouble. And so the, these folk, Reuben, Gad, half tribe of Manasseh, they say, well, we'll make a deal with you. We will go first, our warriors. We'll be in the front line. And we won't leave Canaan until it's completely conquered. Until you told us, then we'll go home. But not until then. So Moses says, okay, good deal. And so they do that. And so for the next seven years, they've got the, the promised land thing going on. The battles of Joshua, the battle of Jericho and all that stuff. Then you come to Joshua 22. They just fought everything. It says, then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, you've done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. And you've obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but you've carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful. 
to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the Lord your God, uh, servant the Lord gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. These, these folk who were ended up on the other side of the Jordan. Just let me put, that, put up the map for just a second. Just, just let me point out just a couple things for you. Those tribes on the, on the east of the Jordan, those are called the Transjordan tribes. And here's the problem. Not everybody agrees that that's actually part of the promised land. As a matter of fact, they weren't trying to conquer that land. Remember, they just wanted to get over the Jordan. Usually Canaan is the promised land. That's God's land. Not necessarily the land on the other side of the Jordan. Also, you need to know that on the west, that's where the capital is going to be. Now, it's not Jerusalem yet. This is like 400 years before David. It's a place called Shiloh, but it's there that they have the the tabernacle set up. That's where the altar is. That's where the sacrifices are. That's where God hangs out over there. These guys have asked for land on the other side, and they've been granted that land. That's the Transjordan. Verse 10. Now, here's the problem. Because you've got two groups of despicable bags of dismal depravity, life is good right now. I mean, it's sunshine and rainbows and cotton candy for Israel. They just won and they conquered and they they divided the land. Everything's looking good. But we know life doesn't always continue on that way. So in verse 10, it says, When they, that's Reuben, Gad, Haftab, and Manasseh, Transjordan guys, they took off, they went home. When they came to Gililoth, Near the Jordan in the land of Canaan. So they're still on the, on the west side of the Jordan River. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gileath near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Verse 13, we have a confrontation. Now, just before they go to war, they're getting ready, they're sharpening their swords, they're getting ready to go, but cooler heads prevail and they send a contingent. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, and with him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each of the head family division among the Israelite clans. And when they went to Gilead, to Reuben Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today... Tomorrow you'll be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves, other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. You know, these guys are kind of upset. Again, they're getting ready to go to war. And you ask, well, why are they so bent out of shape? Leviticus. We have this up. Leviticus 17. This is the problem. Say to them. This is way before this happened. Any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. 
That's in Shiloh. That's on the west side. It's going to be in Jerusalem one day. And sacrifice it to the Lord must be cut off from the people of Israel. There was a command that you sacrifice to the Lord for atonement only at the tabernacle, only at the temple. It's the only place you can do this. That's it. And here these folk are. What they did is they, they built their own t- altar. And, and Phineas is talking. He says, for crying out loud, don't you guys remember the Peor? Now, what happened at Peor? Numbers 25. Fascinating story. I encourage you to read this. But the people decided to start worshiping the gods of the land. And they got into immorality. A plague from God, judgment, hit the people. 24,000 were dead until this very Phineas did something incredibly mind-blowing and stopped the plague. You have to read that yourself. But he says, remember this? 24,000 of us died. This, this joker from Simeon starts this thing. One guy, but look what happens. And then don't remember, don't forget Achan. You got one guy who, who took the, the, the devoted things. He disobeyed God. And what happened? Well, next time they go into war against Ai, 30 people get killed, 30 warriors. That means 30 wives are now widows. 30 sets of kids, what is 150 children, 200 kids, don't have a dad anymore. Sole source of survival is gone. These families have to be spread out among other people. Hardship. There's been mourning in Israel from one guy. And Phineas is saying, if one guy blows it and all this happens, what's going to happen if two and a half tribes blow this? They're disobeying God. They decided to build their own altar, and they confront them straight up. They confront them. Now, first principle we see of healthy relationships is we have got to confront properly. Now, a lot of reasons why we don't want to confront. I mean, I don't, you, who likes to confront? Who wants to confront? That person's a psychopath, right? Don't allow anyone who likes to confront. Bad idea. So we don't want to, and we rationalize and make up all reasons why we shouldn't. They're not going to listen anyway, and I'm not that close to the situation. And we've got lots of reasons why we should never confront. We're, we're really good at, at making that. But there's no perfect relationship. Relationships have problems. And we could go through more scripture, Matthew 18, and Paul's example when he confronts Peter in Galatians. Scripture is replete with this, that healthy relationships require that we confront. But you have to confront properly, because you can confront improperly, can't you? Have you ever confronted improperly or been confronted improperly? Yes, you can do that. I think as we look at this passage, we see that one of the aspects for healthy confrontation is you confront for the holiness of God. Quite often when we confront, when I confront, let me make this personal, it's not necessarily because God's been offended. It's because I've been offended. The reason why we get ticked off or angry is because we are trying to reach some sort of obstacle or some sort of destination, whatever that might be, pleasure, fun, convenience, our reputation, whatever it is, and someone throws an obstacle or life throws an obstacle, keeps us from getting to it, and we get angry because we wanted to get to whatever the destination was, and something has caused it. And so usually when we get upset, when we confront somebody, what happened is our goal, whatever that may have been, our kingdom was, was blocked. How dare them block our, our kingdom? And so we're going to confront them. But how many times, not that we shouldn't put it on the table with that on occasion, but how many times do we confront because God was offended or because this is something that will hurt the kingdom of God or hurt the individual? A good question we have to ask ourselves before we confront. Am I confronting because my kingdom was offended or because God's was, was offended? Because God's reputation, because God's name is at stake, because the purity of the church, because our witness is at stake. 
or because my convenience, comfort, prestige, whatever else is his challenge. We, we, we confront for, for the uh, holiness of God. Also, before the war, you notice these guys back in Shiloh right now are strapping on their armor, right? And they're putting on their swords and they're getting their sling stones together and they got their plan. Okay, you go around this way, we're going to go around this way. They're, 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 they're preparing for war. And if these guys wouldn't have gone in with the delegation, they would have wiped out. Decimated two and a half tribes of Israel, then God's judgment would have come on the whole nation. This was this was these guys were inches away from a serious serious issue. And so so they they sent these folk Phineas and company to ask some questions. Have you had ever had anyone confront you? But they are there for war. They have already judged. They know what the issue is. They've added two and two, and they've gotten five, and they know your heart, and they are there for war. They've got their arrows, and they are shooting, shooting at you, and they are, war is going on. And he would say, you know, if you've got my kind of personality, you're quiet, you sit on it, 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 until you blow, and that's when the war happens. But Scripture would let us know that when we confront, we have to confront. We need to confront before the war. We need to confront with this is how it seems to me. Maybe I'm seeing this wrong. But man, this is just how this looks. Help me understand what's going on with this before the war. The third thing, we need to confront in love. If you look at verse 19 here, it says, Phineas talking, he says, If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands. Let's come to the west. And share the land with us. Now, this is wild because the land in the West has already been all divvied up. Everyone's got their borders. And what they're saying, if you come on over, our borders are going to shrink. We'll redivvy it. And it's taken them a long time to get it divided up. We'll redivvy it, though, he's saying. And we will take less if, if this is going to hurt you. Please, come, come over. Come over. When someone confronts and they truly love you and they are willing to personally to sacrifice for your betterment. Isn't that radically different than someone confronts and they want a hanging, you know, and they want you to be the guest of honor at the hanging, you know? And I'm human, I know. I want a hanging too on the front end. We have to work out though, work through the hanging thing, put that aside and get to the helping thing. We cannot confront if we're looking for a hanging. We confront when we're willing to help. When we, we passed our, our mind, our, our heart through the, the, the kingdom of God, the fingers of God, and we, we've gotten to a place where we're saying, I care for this person. I love this person. It's not about my kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. And therefore, I'm going to front, confront. When you confront in that manner, things change. Things happen. So we need, we need to uh, confront properly. And maybe even just with that, God has put something, someone on your mind. You know you need to confront properly. You know it, but you've been putting it off. Also, though, second principle is we need to be confronted properly. Have you ever cr- confront somebody and they just blow? Or it's really a terrible thing. And they've told you, you know, don't confront me again. And you're, man, I'm not doing that again. That was an awful thing. Um, we need to be confronted properly. Uh, verse 30. Oh, excuse me, verse 21. It says, Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord. He knows. And when we, when we are confronted, the way, the way we, we handle a confrontation is the first thing we need to do is we need to rest in the sovereignty of God. 
Because you know what? They may never understand. They may not want to understand. They may not care what your motivation is. They may have it all wrong. They may have dubbed you who knows what. We still rest in the one day I'm going to stand before Almighty God and not this person. And Almighty God will judge me. That's the most important thing. That Sometimes it's all we can rest in. But you rest in it. You don't leave it there. But let Israel know as well that if this had been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, then may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear. They're going to explain their motivation. For fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, What do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That's why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it's to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if ever they say this to us or our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our fathers built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. A second aspect of being confronted properly is no counterattacks. No counterattacks. Now, these guys had a, a, you know, they explained their fears. And their fears were actually legitimate fears. Again, this part of the land that they were occupying was not really considered the land God gave them. It was the land that Moses gave them. It really wasn't considered part of the promised land. And they thought that, that these guys, the guys in the West, would see the Jordan River as not just a border but a barrier. And one day, because in ancient times the God was often considered part of the land, and they would recognize that those Transjordan guys were hanging out in pagan land, they would write them out of the spiritual will. It's, you guys can't come to the altar. You can't come to the temple. You can't come to the tabernacle. No, 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 no. You have no the promises to Abraham. They're not for you. You're done. And they're thinking, what will happen to our children? What will they do then? And so they... they, they. Now, when you look at the problem here, this miscommunication, who is at fault? Think through this. I mean, the guys, the Transjordan guys, Gad, Reuben, half-tribe of Manasseh, wouldn't it have probably been wise for them to tell the, the Western tribes what they were going to do? When, when, Moses, when Joshua sends them out, wouldn't it have been wise for them to say, Joshua, we're going to our land, but listen, we've got to tell you our fears here. Wouldn't that have been the time? I mean, knowing Peor and Achan and, and what they've experienced, and knowing Leviticus and knowing the, the command not to build another altar, you think they would have told them? I, I think they dropped the ball here a little bit. And, and the guys on the east, was, where did, did they falter with this at all? Well, maybe they could have looked at Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said, you know what, Joshua just gave them a stellar uh, performance review. And they led our battles. They suffered more casualties than the rest of us for, for this. And you know what? The guy with the Peor thing, that was a Simeonite. And the guy with Achan, I mean, Achan was a Judite. And these guys are good, good tribes. 
Their, their reputation goes before them. And maybe the guys on the West would say, you know, if they were going to build an altar, why do they make it an imposing altar? Which means giant. Now, if you've ever been to the Louisville Slugger Museum in Louisville, Kentucky, they make baseball bats. It's kind of cool. But on the way in, they have got this Mongo baseball bat. I mean, this thing goes up as high as the, just, just, it's just, you know, humongous. Now, no one would think that someone's really going to use it. It was a real bat. It's made out of real wood. But, but they would realize, oh, that's a replica. That's a, a symbol for what they do here. And so they're thinking, we made this thing huge. This was a massive altar, bigger than you could really use. You think the guys on the, on the West would recognize that? You think the guys on the West would recognize, uh, why did they build this altar on our side of the river? I mean, if they wanted to use it, why didn't they put it in their side? How come they put it on our side? And you think the guys from the West would go look at it and notice there's no bloodstains and there's no ashes and it's never been used before. Uh, maybe it would still have questions they would need to ask, but they wouldn't come in with accusations requiring uh, repentance. Uh, maybe, maybe that would have been the so. But, but look at the way that these guys responded. They didn't come in with accusations against them. I mean, if someone has ever accused you improperly, judged your motivation, how, how do you respond? I mean, we get upset, don't we? Especially if I'm right. Oh, can you imagine there? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Look at our track record. I mean, get a clue. Duh, why would we have built the altar on your side if we were going to use it? Don't start challenging me. Who do you think you are? Get the plank out of your eye before you start calling me on the carpet. You know, all those kind of things. When we're accused, they would have had the right. When we're accused, we don't offer a counterattack. Now, they were passionate. They explained themselves, but no counterattack. Did the guys on the West handle it perfectly? No. No counterattack. The guys on the, on the, the Transjordan guys handle it perfectly? No, that's not, that's not an issue either. Let's deal with, with the problem. Let's deal with what, what is. Well, as we, we look at the resolution, verse 30. When Phineas the priest and the leaders of the community and the heads of the clans of the Israelites heard that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had heard what they had to say. They were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not acted unfaithfully toward the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites, the Gadites, and Gilead and reported to the Israelites... They were glad to hear the report and praise God, and they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. A third principle I think we see of uh, handling the problems is you have to, to seek to understand the other side. Uh, sometimes we don't want to know the other side. Don't try to make excuses. I know. I give, I've shared this before, but when I was at school one time, a uh, kid on my floor, everybody in the elevator was uh, from the floor, and first floor, uh, another guy, last guy to walk on was another kid from the floor. There was five or six of, six of us on. So we started going up, and the kid uh, looked a little bit distraught who last walked in. So one of the other guys did what college guys do to someone who's distraught, and mocked him a little bit. So I said something tonight about the guy. Well, the guy just dropped his books. He looked at us, and he started swearing, and then just started swinging. I mean, like a tornado. I mean, hands going everywhere. We're ducking. We hit the beta, and we threw him off and closed the doors, and we got out of there. 
And we had some things to say about this guy. Man, man, he got the wrong side of the bed and overreacted and wasn't a big deal and blah, blah, blah. Who does he think he is? Until we realized that he had just opened a letter, I mean, just seconds ago, that said he was being asked to leave school because of his grades. And he was going to have to call home with incredible humiliation and, and tell the guys on the floor with incredible humiliation and lose the support and have wasted a substantial amount of money for school. Now, should you ever be swinging and punching people and swearing? Well, probably not. But you know what? That wasn't even on our hearts and minds at that point. Because we thought, that was me. Oh, man, what a terrible, terrible place. We didn't even think about that. All we thought about is we got to pray for this guy. we got to be with this guy and encourage him. Um, somebody may really have done whatever it is. But when we understand the circumstances, when we help me understand, and they share, their, well, I was thinking this and this and this. If we're seeking to understand, perhaps we might say, I can see why you did that. I mean, it was a dumb thing to do, but I can see why you did that. Or the other way around. I can see why you would confront me. I, you know, I don't like it, but I, I can see why you would think that. Uh, whenever confrontation's going on, the parties who seek to understand the other person have a much better uh, chance of resolving. Fourth principle. I think we see here, is to believe, choose to believe the other person. Determine to believe the other person and let it go. I mean, think about this for a minute. These Transjordan tribes, they had a nice reason for building this altar, but is it a possibility that they weren't being up front? Is there a possibility that they were truly looking to worship some of the gods of the land? Other than Jehovah God. Well, we know from looking at the rest of Israel, that is a very possible situation. And you need to know that not all the scholars fall on the side of the Transjordan tribes. Some of them are saying there's just too much going on here. Maybe that the Transjordan guys' motives are not as pure as what they're saying. Maybe you've approached somebody about something, and they start saying, well, and they start giving you the song and dance about how pure their motivation is. Do you, do you really know? Did Phineas really know? His word versus their word. How, how could he know? He didn't know. But he chose to believe and let it go. You know, there is a lot of Scripture. I mean, Scripture's all over the place on this one. We have to confront. God calls us to. God calls us to. But God also makes it very clear, that line, of what our responsibility is and what his is. And to cross the line is really to say, God, I know more about relationships than you do. And I'm just a little bit afraid that I can't trust you on this one. But God says, don't be deceived, man. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. He's going to get it if, in fact, he is what you think he is. It's going to happen. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of the vengeance thing. But 1 Corinthians 13 says that love always protects, always trusts. Some versions would say believes all things. The context here of love is relational. And whenever we're in relationship, we always believe, we always trust among believers. We do. We have to let that go. And you might say, well, if I do this, then there will be times when they're lying to me and they're getting away with it. And I I don't know if I can. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's talking to two despicable bags of dismal depravity that are clashing with each other. So much so they're going to take it to court. And Paul says, oh, you guys, just by you deciding to go to court with this thing, you have failed. And then I love this. He says, you think the other person is pulling something over on you? So what? But why not rather be wronged? Why don't you? Oh, you're right. You're going to lose. Okay, lose. 
verses, make this big spiel. Just, just let that go. Let it go. Was it uh, two weeks ago? I received a, a letter from a girl. She used to be in my youth group um, a long time ago. Uh, she says, Mark, I know you may not even remember who I am, as it's been a long time, actually 25 years. But there have been many times, probably too many, that I think about how differently my life may have been if the influences of the youth group and the feelings of failure that I have carried would not have been. She defines herself more, though I knew who she was. But she says, getting to the point, I'm writing this email to you now after all these years. I have several questions that I've always wanted to ask you. One of the biggest ones was why you told me you were coming to visit me in the hospital after I tried to commit suicide and never showed up. This was one of the most hurtful things and made me truly resent the church and made me feel the church as a whole was not trustworthy. I have not been able to get into a church since. Another question would be, what did I ever do to deserve to be failed? As a teenager, there's so much trust that's built in adults, but yet when I turned to you as a youth minister and a confidant, the door was shut. Whether or not you believed in what I had done was neither here nor there. That should have been the opportunity to help someone in trouble, and I was. I look back on my life and how it's been, and it's been a rough road to get where I am. I don't blame anyone as I've made my own choices, but I have to say this to you. You're someone in a position that can influence in positive or negative way. You have choices to make as well. I live my life always feeling as though the church turned their back on me, when in reality, you did. I, I wrote her back after groveling for some time. And I said, I, I, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. It's been a long time. I don't know of all the circumstances regarding, you know, what, what, uh, when you tried to take your life. Uh, perhaps I was too busy or too insensitive, too young. Uh, perhaps I just didn't view your life as valuable before God as I should have. And I don't know what else to say other than, I'm very sorry. Would you please forgive me? I... Uh, I'm a despicable bag of dismal depravity. And unfortunately, I live that out sometimes. Didn't mean to. It's irrelevant. And gratefully, she wrote me back a couple days later and said, uh, I do forgive you. Sometimes when people confront us, the answer is, you're right. I really messed up and I am, I am sorry. What can I do to fix it? Uh, that's the right response. As we get involved in relationships, this side of glory, there's going to be issues. There's no perfect relationship. Be grateful for those times when it is. But clouds are going to come. But when we respond with an understanding of God's word, we're going to confront for the holiness of God and before the war and in love. And and when we're confronted, we're going to to rest in the the hands of, of God when, when, in fact, we're going to seek to understand without counterattack. We're going to seek to understand things from the other person's perspective. And then we're going to choose to believe the best and let it go. When we practice the principles that God's laid out in his word, all of our relationships, even though they're faltering, will we'll rise. And we'll, we'll appreciate and enjoy the joy that God meant for there to be in relationship.